But with that, let's go to the Lord again. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these reminders. These reminders of the great salvation that we have in Christ. Uh, the, the price that was paid, we understand there is, there is no way to put a value on what Jesus did for us. There is no way to weigh out the, um, the debt that we had that we could not pay. And in your sovereignty and in your plan, you took a priceless gift in Christ and paid an impossible debt. And we acknowledge today, Lord, that it is only through Jesus that that could have taken place. How in the world can we, in our finiteness, in our fallen state, ever have the pride to say that we somehow earn our way into your presence? But yet, because of Christ... We are right now in your presence, and someday, without anything in between us, we will forever be with you. God himself making his abode, making his home with us. That's what the plan was from the beginning, and that's what it is going to be in the end. And so we thank you that if we are your followers today, that we are a part of that kingdom and a part of that home and even as Bob said that we have been adopted. Lord as we examine the scriptures today it's going to be some practical things about what that life is supposed to be about and so I pray Lord that as we take a look at this that we will make proper application and that we will make proper reflection. We ask all this in Jesus name. Amen. So last week, we talked about life together in Christ as the church. And this week, we're going to talk about living a life of separation. You might think to yourself, okay, how does that go together? And it will, but um, as, we, as we think about uh, life together, we used Acts 2, 42 through 47 as a template or guide for being together as a church. And so I just want to read that for you in review, review a couple of other, uh, the main points of this as we move forward, because there, there, is, there is some correlation between last week's message and this week. So uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47, it says this, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. <clears throat> so what I basically want to do is just give a summary of last week and uh, it, it's, in, it's in slide form here, but I just wanted us to see here that we have, we have um, 
three colors here. The first is what I called the context of the church, which is what we will see. And then there is the content of the church. And then the other thing that we're going to look at, and I'll just pick up the slide here, is the culture of the church. So the context was meeting at the central meeting place at the church and in homes. They did that continually. We know that, again, they met at the temple because they didn't, this is brand new. They didn't have a place where they met. That was the place of worship, and that was where they gathered. Also, we see their content. They continued in what? In doctrine, specifically the apostles' doctrine. We mentioned that the apostles received their doctrine from Christ himself, from the Holy Spirit, through the Father and the Son, giving them what they needed to learn and also bringing to remembrance what they had already learned. Uh, they also continued in a cooperative, Christ-centered partnership. That's that idea of fellowship together. They continued in spending time together and in prayers. So that was the content of what they did together. And then there was this culture that they had, for sake of a better term. There was unity, charity, service to one another, joy, simplicity. And the idea there was sincerity. There, there, there wasn't any gamesmanship or anything going on in relation to that. They, they, they all had this same unifying respect and, and appreciation for one another. Uh, worship and then integrity, and that had to do with the integrity of their testimony outside. As people were observing what was happening in this new thing called the church, right? They, they, they were seeing that these people had integrity. They saw that reflected in their lives. So we've looked at several different things over the last several weeks before we jump into the book of Job. But today, what I want to talk about again is separation. And as we begin this, I want to talk about individual separation. The first aspect of this is separation from sin. Now, I'm just going to tell you in advance... um, these are going to seem kind of similar, but we're, we're, we're dividing them up for specific reasons because the scriptures do indicate that there are several different things that we are to separate from as individuals. And so in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16, it says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, which basically means prepare your minds, all right? Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming our, yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. How we think and live is not supposed to be shaped by our past character apart from Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that sin leads to death. I don't think that's what we want to be pursuing in our lives, right? That's not the direction that we want to go. Even though we're saved, we don't want to be on that track. In this passage, Peter says that we committed sin before Christ, uh, before Christ, meaning before our life in Christ, because we were ignorant. His emphasis is directed more toward not knowing Jesus. But the point here is, is that now we know Christ and shouldn't be acting like the world. There's supposed to be a difference. Now, we also need to note that Peter instructs them in how to do the opposite. And so we'll kind of put this in a personal form. 
Obey the Lord by preparing your mind, by thinking clearly, and by uh, fully trusting in Christ's gracious provision. That's how we're going to live for him. Everything in this passage points to us living a holy life, a life separate from sin, and a life that is apart, set apart to God to serve him. That's what this, this whole passage is really focusing on, is that be holy for I am holy. But part of that is not conforming ourselves, not, not being shaped by our former selfish desires. Now, we say former, right? That's, that's where we were, but we know that they're still hang on. And the whole point is we need to get rid of them. Ephesians 4 says something about that, verses 20 through 24, but you have not so learned Christ. Now, obviously, there's something that he's talking about before that, right? Talking about a past lifestyle. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness in Christ. So Paul here tells us to put off that old self. Our old way of life is corrupted by our selfish desires. These desires are called deceitful. All sin is a lie because it represents itself as what is right, even though it's plainly wrong. You think about that for a minute, right? Sin, all sin, is a lie because it's an offense against God. It's, it's going off of what God's standard is. But sin always says, hey, Right? Do this because it's a better alternative than what? Obedience. It's a better alternative than faithfulness. Well, that's not what the scriptures say to us, okay? But that's also why it's so difficult to separate ourselves from it. It is deceitful. Our hearts also happen to be deceitful. That doesn't help either, okay? So here we have this battle that's going on for our hearts, for our minds, and it's a matter of separation. We need to distance ourselves, separate ourselves from sin. The next thing that we see here is separation from the world. Let me read for you from 1 John, beginning in, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, going through verse 17. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a pretty drastic verse there, folks, right? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So we need to just take a, a, a moment here, and we're not going to do an in-depth study of this word, but enough. The term cosmos or world is used in a huge variety of ways in the New Testament. A huge variety of ways. Let me just give you some of them. It represents the universe at times, the earth, all living things that inhabit the earth, and all of mankind. Okay? So sometimes it means all of those different things. World can also stand for some organized entity or institution, like a government. It is used to signify all people who are hostile to God, the world. Then there is the world system, earthly things, oftentimes characterized as opposed to God's purposes. 
world can also refer exclusively to believers. I just wanted us to see just in this account um, an example of that. John 1.29 says that the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, folks, if we take that as all mankind and their sins are taken away, then we had to come to the conclusion that we're universalists, that all people go to heaven. That's not what the scriptures say elsewhere. So world here has to mean something different. All right? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19 say this, For if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to, to himself through Christ Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Well, who's he talking to here? He's talking to believers. So this world has to be all believers. So, he, so he, let's just continue reading. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. All right? We have similar things that we say today. We, histor we uh, historically call the Roman Empire the Roman world, right? You've probably heard that term before. Some of us have to go back, way back to school, but that's what they called it. How about Walt Disney World or even the wonderful world of Disney? Well, that just means everything that Disney's all about, but it's that world, all right? Sometimes we talk about things that can rock our world or make a world of difference, does it change the entire world? No, but it might change ours. Okay? So we use those same references today. We, we, we talk the same way. And that's how we see the scriptures doing it. So what is the point? What's the point of me illustrating this a little bit deeper? It's context. Context is king, and context rules interpretation. We have to understand that. The setting of the word or group of words determines their meaning. So, just to get us back to where we were, in the first John passage, worlds stands for the earthly system of man and all that it offers in opposition to God and his will. That's what this word, word, word world stands for. John makes a bold statement that we cannot love the false anti-God system of the world and love God at the same time. Now, that... It should not shock anyone in this room, okay? We should understand that. Now, just one quick note. I do have one word, world, here that is delineated a little bit differently. And if you look at the flow, right, and I'll just start with these things are not of the Father, but are of the world, and the world is passing away. That now went, boom, out to big picture, Okay. The universe is passing away, which includes the world system, because then he goes on to say, and the lust of it. Well, what are we talking about when it comes to the world system? The selfish desires, right? So that, that's how that's kind of baked in there. So we even see the word world being used a little bit differently in this context. But ultimately, the focus, the, the, the emphasis is on a world system that is dominated by sin, 
that is designed to take us away from following Christ. And we must separate from it. We must separate from it. Very familiar verse, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, I beg you, I'm pleading with you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We should, take a, we should have a fresh take on what is, for many of us, a very familiar passage. The emphasis of the passage is obviously positive instruction. That's the emphasis. But Paul is pleading for the follower of Christ to give, our, to give our lives to him, to live our lives for him, to be a, to be a sacrifice based upon what? based upon all the mercies that he had already just written about in the first 11 chapters. We're also to renew our minds in the process of doing this. This is sanctification or spiritual, spiritual growth after salvation. This is us setting ourselves apart based upon our salvation. So conforming to the standards and practices of the world can never lead to successfully living a faithful life. If we, and, and there's a, a saying, and I can't remember who said it, but it's, it's kind of common. But it says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Okay? So if you think of a cookie cutter, and this is not like the world as in the globe, but this is, this is the, the, the mold that the world has, and we're dough, and we allow the world to cookie cutter us to look like itself, if we're not looking like Christ, you know what I mean? It doesn't work. Our conformity is to be to Christ. Our identity is to be in Christ. Not conforming to the standards of the world. So there's sin in general, which we deal with, yes, somewhat on the outside, but certainly on the inside. Our souls battle that. But then there's this world system that's against God, right? Another aspect that we see that we need to separate from is false teachers. I'm going to highlight just one passage here uh, for now. We, we have a couple more, but there's, there's so many of them. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3 through 5, it says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accord with godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, we covered a lot of topics related to the Christian life when we talked about, when we went through the book of Colossians. And I know I referred to that, but we, we hit a lot of things. Recognizing and avoiding false teachers is one of those topics, so we're not going to park here very long. But review also has its benefits, and there's, there's a reason why uh, this topic is in almost every New Testament book. And some of those, it's actually um, uh, the theme of the book is, is, is speaking against false teaching. 
So according to this passage, what are we to guard against? Anyone that does not participate in wholesome or beneficial words. Christ is the ultimate source and standard for sound words. The idea here is, is health, and it's primarily talking about spiritual health, but even the physical health can benefit from good words, from sound words, from truthful things that are being said. So what are we to guard against? Teaching that does not align with godly living. Now, some of these things might seem obvious, but how do uh, false teachers get a toehold? It has to be through some of these things. We need to guard against someone who is arrogant and conceited. We see that in this passage. Someone who is controversial, who engage in meaningless arguments over unimportant words. Do you ever have a conversation with somebody when it just never ends? Right? And I'm not talking about them giving you their life story, okay? Uh, I, I'm saying that it just seems like, okay, you made a point, I made a point. Oh, no, but you got a counterpoint. All right, well, you know, I acknowledge that counterpoint, but I don't agree with that. No, but I got another counterpoint. You see what I mean? And it's just, it's a constant thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, like two weeks later, hey, you know, I was thinking about the thing. Uh. But there's never really any solution or the solution isn't right. Okay? And that's what we're talking about, specifically spiritual things. Notice also as, as you're looking at this passage, it's someone who creates gossip, suspicions, and conflict. Their teaching creates division within the church. Obviously, that is very different than what we learned we were to be about last week. Paul characterizes false teachers as not knowing true doctrine, unhealthy in their thinking, and motivated by gain. So as we kind of summarize here, it's, it's pretty obvious that these are not people that we are to be around. All right? We're to separate ourselves from them. We're not to entertain their musings, their questioning, their theories. It is only going to bring... Uh, harm on the person as, as a Christian and on the body of Christ. The last thing we have here is separation from unbelievers. As individuals, we're told to separate from unbelievers. I've, I've got two slides here. This is a longer passage, but I wanted to, us to keep moving here. It says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Now, I just want to pause here. It should be pretty obvious on the screen. But you have this back and forth, the correct and the incorrect, right? And, and, and he goes back and forth. But in between those things, you have these similar words that have to do with a relationship. And the question is, how can these things relate? And the obvious answer is they don't. But let's go back here again. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Now, that, that's just a synonym for Satan himself, right? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their people and they shall be, I'm sorry, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the, con- the context goes on, starting in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 6. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will dwell with them and walk with them. I'm sorry, I mix that together. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Separation from unbelievers is not the same as separation from the world. The world is a more general system, but separating from unbelievers is much more personal and relational. Paul uses the example of a yoke joining two animals together for work. To be unequally yoked is to be mismatched, like trying to plow by harnessing a horse and an ox together. It's it's not going to work. It's not going to happen right. Here are some examples of the kinds of joining together that Paul is talking about. Dating or marrying an unbeliever. To me, there is no nothing else on earth that can be as, as opposite as far as purpose is concerned. Is joining in marriage, the two becoming one when they are not in agreement when it comes to Christ. Okay? Now, there are other passages that talk about how we deal with uh, uh, things if we are already married to an unbeliever or if we respond in faith and our, and our spouse doesn't. So, so I'm not coming down on anybody here. I'm, I'm simply saying that this is what we're to avoid doing. Okay? In your present state, there's other scriptures to look at that we can't look at this morning. But this is not a judgment of somebody who might be in this situation. All right? It's a warning and instruction to those who are heading that direction. Also, participating, and again, these are examples, participating in a ceremony of a false religion, thereby affirming the false theology by associating with it. So you're asked to participate in something that you know is wrong. That's a tough one, isn't it? That gets personal. I also believe that what Paul is talking about in spirit here as we look at how these relationships go is joining with an unbeliever in something that results in violating our spiritual or ethical distinctiveness as a Christian. I've got to stop Selecting these weird words to try to... Anyway, do you get the idea here, though? We are to be a distinct people. We're to be different. And when we are participating in something that actually basically makes us not different, then we're violating what we're supposed to be doing. Now, I I gave a couple of examples there already, but um, if we want to get a little more specific... Uh, please understand, some people can say, will say, well, you know, you're not even supposed to be in business with unbelievers. Well, I'm not sure if that is something that you join into that is for the purpose, spiritually, of, of, of going against the Lord. You see what I mean? Now, if in fact you have a business venture with somebody and it starts to head that direction, <laughs> then these verses now kick in. 
they apply. All right? Now, if your conviction is that you shouldn't do that, I'm certainly not telling you what to do. I'm simply saying I'm not sure that it goes to that degree. What we're talking about are activities that, that really compromise ourselves. All right? And, and we'll get into to, to, to how this all links together in a little bit. So that's another thing that we are to be careful of, all right? This idea of, of uh, uh, individual separation in this regard. But now let's look to corporate or church separation. By corporate, that simply means just everybody together, not like we're a corporation, all right? So we, I mean, we have a business to do, but it's not that kind, all right? So, so church separation, what does that look like? The first thing is separation from false teachers. Now, I understand that we just talked about this, and I just want to remind us again that false teaching is a regular topic in the New Testament, but there are some things that are said to churches, you know, to the church as a whole as well. So I want us to read 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4 together, and then I'll just show a couple of verses that come from that passage. 1 Timothy 4, let me read for you verses 1 through 7. Now, as you're turning there, Paul is writing to whom? Timothy? Timothy is a pastor. Okay? That, that's a slightly different context here than just a general warning. So here's what it says. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter days, latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. A little bit different take, right? A little bit different take. And, and here's, here's some potential things that they might teach, right? Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished with the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself rather to godliness. So I just want to see here that he is told to instruct the brethren in these things. This is a church-wide instruction that... Tim, Paul is telling Timothy to do. And part of that is to reject profane and old wives' tales. And, and, and this refers even back to all these different things that, that the false teachers are teaching. Correct teaching is critical for every believer, but it is even more essential that the local church maintain proper doctrine. Last week, one of the key elements of the church was continuing in the apostles' doctrine, which they had received from the Lord himself. I noted that. False teaching cannot be tolerated in the church. It is an attack of the very core and foundation of the church. It undercuts everything that we believe and practice. And I want to make something clear. It doesn't matter if the instruction is formal or informal. In other words, whether someone is, is teaching in some formal capacity here at the church and then goes off the rails, or whether it's one of those situations where we're meeting in our homes and someone who is a part of our church would begin to teach something that is not 
doctrinally sound. Any of those things. To be clear, that has, this has to do with keeping the integrity of a proper interpretation and understanding of Scripture. At times, people can come to different understandings of Scripture. That does not constitute false teaching per se. One example is that some Christians believe that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he told them to do likewise, that he established foot washing, washing as an ordinance of the church that is to be observed by the church. Others see this as Christ telling his followers uh, by, or showing his followers by example to humbly serve others. All right. Now, we hold to the second aspect of that because we just don't see Scripture repeating uh, those different things throughout the rest of the New Testament. All right. Foot washing was a regular occurrence as you left the town and came into a home. It was designed to keep things clean and keep you clean. All right? But it wasn't a pleasant thing to do. <laughs> okay? It was an act of service, whether you were a servant, right? Or whether you were a good, humble host. The point is, people can look at this differently. We would not characterize a church that simply has foot washing as an ordinance as a regular practice, as, as people who are, you know, doctrinally unsound. And one of the very few grounds for church discipline is holding to and teaching false doctrine. We need to understand that too. And by the way, I don't want to forget, I almost forgot this. When we're talking about, you know, separation based upon false teaching, application of scripture and teaching about scripture are two different things. In other words, how someone, through their own freedom in Christ, were to understand a scripture and then apply it, right? We should have the same understanding, but how they apply it might be different than how you apply it. That doesn't mean that they're like some heathen, okay? Now, I'm not going to get into examples, but the point is, is that we have freedom in Christ to exercise our life in him, right? Independently to a degree. But to the point that we are messing with doctrine, that's where the line is drawn here, okay? The other thing that we're to do is we're to have separation from erring Christians. Separation from erring Christians. I want to begin this section here by looking at the scriptures. Romans 16, 17 through 20, I want them to kind of speak and, and give us a kind of a holistic look at this uh, as far as the verses that I have, and then we'll start dealing with it. It says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous 
or extortioners or idolaters. And I, I think that you can almost put a dot, dot, dot on here, right? Sinful people out in the world. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or an extortioner and even to eat with such a person. That's personal, right? For what have I to do with judging those also who are, outside, who are uh, outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. One more passage. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disor- disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. As I mentioned already, the topic here is a very personal and emotional topic. The Bible describes a complete separation from an erring brother or sister in Christ. We are talking about breaking all contact with who we consider to be really a family member. We're really kind of talking about a spiritual divorce here. All right? Take note that we're only to sever ties with someone for very serious sins or for a lifestyle completely contrary to God. And by completely, I'm not saying absolutely completely, but, you know, their lifestyle is not in accordance. It's disorderly, right? That's the verse that we looked at. I want us to consider some things that won't necessarily make this decision easier. In other words, to separate from someone that was a church family member, if it need be, but to understand why the decision is necessary. God requires us to lovingly discipline an erring brother. Now, we're not to separate from a repentant brother, okay? If done properly, the separation is designed to draw the person back into fellowship with God and the church. The church did not create the situation. The erring brother willfully chose to disobey God and remain in error. You get that? This, this, is, this is a lifestyle that someone is choosing. This is a course of action that someone takes and doesn't divert from it. They don't repent. They don't come back to what is sound. Folks, condoning gross sin will corrupt the church. It's just going to happen. Compromise leads to more compromise. Now, by compromise, I'm not saying that, you know, we don't ever add an instrument to to how we worship, okay? (gasps) We've used something else. Compromise doesn't mean that someday we have only chairs in here and no pews. I've heard of some churches where a huge fight breaks out because they want to get rid of the pews to increase the ability to seat people. Pews are holy, right? (laughs) But you understand what I'm saying. This is not the compromise we're talking about here. We're talking about compromising doctrine. We're talking about compromising biblical principles. And that compromise will lead to more compromise. 
And then, I didn't have my slides just right earlier. We're talking about separation from the world. Now, what I want to say about this, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but I want us to understand there is a mandate to the church about separating from the world. The church's separation from the world is really a collective of all of these things that we covered. I, I don't know that there's a chapter and verse that says church, right, as a whole, be separate from the world. But all of these things that we're talking about represent worldliness, which means that we together must reject all that represents sin, the world system, and false teaching. It, it, it all, in essence, comes down to one ball of wax, so to speak, that we need to reject as a body of believers. So we've talked about these different things, that there's a personal side, there's a corporate side, and now what I want us just to remind us of is this. Separation is not total withdrawal. Separation is not total withdrawal. What do I mean by that? Let's take two verses that we already have looked at. 1 Corinthians 5.10, and then I've got just some selections from 2 Corinthians 6. What's interesting is it's to the same church, right? Two letters to the same church. Yet I certainly did not mean, he's talking about a previous letter that he wrote. So 1 Corinthians really isn't 1 Corinthians, it's kind of 2 Corinthians. Anyway, it says, yet I, yet I certainly did not mean to, to stop keeping company with sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But then look at what it says later on. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And it says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Which one is right? I like doing this. The answer is yes. <laughs> Let's talk about that just for a minute. I want us to be sure we understand these two that we understand these two passages do not contradict one another. Scripture simply cannot contradict Scripture. We just need to figure out what's the intended purpose here. And first, in the First Corinthians passage, we saw that Paul never intended for them to think that they should separate themselves from worldly people. How in the world do, how in the world, uh, do, do we uh, tell others about Christ if we're never around them, if we never engage with them? It's not going to happen. Yet in 2 Corinthians passage, Paul tells the same church that they're to, not to improperly join with unbelievers. And he makes us the point so strongly that, again, he borrows from the Old Testament. In the first Corinthians passage, he mentions, I'm sorry, the second Corinthians passage, he mentions to be unequally yoked, which specifically has to do with joining in marriage or engaging in some spiritual matter or, or something like that. So what we have here is two different things. One is to be in and among people who are sinners. Right? Society, work, neighborhood, you name it. The second is to actually join with them in what they are doing. You see the difference? Separate yourselves from the activities that they're all about. Don't join with them in those things. How can you do that? Don't couple with them. but live among them. A common phrase is, 
you're in the world, but not of the world. Right? So I just want us to understand that isolation is not the plan of God. I, I think a good thing that we can insert there is insulation. <laughs> we insulate ourselves from the influences of the world. We keep ourselves from participating in what they are doing when it comes to compromising doctrine or our morality, our walk with the Lord. But just because you're going to you know, maybe have a, a neighbor who has a much, much different lifestyle than you do based upon their ignorance and their selfish desires. And by the way, that word ignorance, that was not a slam. That's, that's, that's where we all were before Christ, right? When we get together and we spend time together in whatever shape or form that is, again, as long as we're not participating with them in something, then there's no reason not to do that. There might actually be every reason to do that. So where does this bring us? This is going to sound a little strange at first for me saying this because we divided everything up, but there's no meaningful difference between what we are to separate ourselves from as individuals and as a group or church. I mean, think about it. It, it, It's sin, it's worldliness, it's influences, it's false teaching. Those things are all there. How a person and a church practically detach themselves from these various things will be different, though. Every person makes many choices and decisions regarding separation, possibly on a day-to-day basis. It just depends on where you're at in your world and, and how you, uh, what you have to deal with as to making these decisions. The church collectively makes choices to, remain good, to, to maintain good doctrine and also maintain the spiritual integrity of the church. But think about it. Does the church as a whole participate in what you have to decide as an individual? No. But there's a vital link between the individual believer and the collective church. How each member separates from sin, the world system, false teaching, and wrongly joining with unbelievers will affect the church. Meaning this, how each of us exercises our separation from all these things is going to have an impact on the body. On the other side of this, how the church maintains separation from worldly practices, false teaching, and professed believers living in sin will determine the integrity of the church. The individual and the body are dependent upon one another, just like Paul said when he was talking about the body of Christ and the individual parts like we talked about again last week. So last week, when we talked about being together in Christ, we were challenged with how to practice that, how to actually practice, how to do togetherness in Christ. This week, we need to ask ourselves how we are practicing our separation from all that threatens our fellowship with Christ and his church. In other words, how it threatens togetherness. Not just as a body of Christ, but our fellowship with the Lord himself. So, just as a few questions, 
Is what you watch or listen to, is how you are entertained God-honoring? Are you allowing the world to influence you in some way? We can go into a lot of details about that, right? Because sometimes we think to ourselves, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm rejecting, you know, um, uh, this philosophy and, and that sin and, and what the world is now saying is normal and all these other different things. And, you know, I, I, I'm in there. But, you know, there's a worldliness that is on the flip side of that, too, where we can get all bound up in standing against a bunch of things, whether it be politics or things like that. And ultimately, they're not what we're supposed to be following. Do you listen to false teachers? I mean, in my time as a pastor, notice I didn't say here, but in my time as a pastor, I've heard or even overheard people talking about listening to a certain preacher on the radio or watching somebody on television or reading this book or whatever. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, uh, do you know who they are? Do you know what they believe? Do you know what they're actually espousing? But they're so well-spoken. I feel great when I listen to them. Or when I watch them. What did we just read about, folks? That's the bait. You just bit. Here's the crazy thing about the bait. It's never good for the fish. (laughs) Never. So the bottom line is this. The individual believer must be pure in the world and the church must be pure within itself but that is the relationship a pure member of the church a pure part of the church each one of us living out righteousness not mixing it with unrighteousness and so on this is an example Coming back, being a part of one another, whether it be the whole church meeting together or meeting individually in each other's homes, whatever it might be. Bringing back to the church, right, collectively, a pure life. The church, then, is responsible. And yes, there there is a certain level of responsibility to leadership, like we saw with Timothy, to make sure that the body of Christ is functioning properly to make sure that our teaching is right, to make sure that we are guarding against what can harm us, what can pull us away, and not getting caught up in some of the latest trends that can sometimes be very, very damaging. But it works both ways, folks. And I don't don't want it to be negative here, but we just want to acknowledge So the individuals go, the church is going to go, and so the church goes, the individuals are going to go. There is a reciprocal relationship here because what? We're all in this together. Let's just think about this as a ship, just for a moment. 
ship is going to require maintenance, and we'll, let's let's call it. You know, we're we're on we're on the Pinta, right? Benina Pinta Santa Maria. It isn't picked one, right? So we're on a wooden ship. So now you guys all got it, right? We're we're rocking back and forth. We're doing our thing, right? Did I say rocking back? We're not supposed to rock back and forth. We're Baptists, but anyway, you, you get the idea. We're on this ship. Is it going to require a little bit of maintenance? Yeah. We're going to trim the sails on occasion. Yeah. Right. Is it possible that we might have a little hole somewhere we got to fill? Possibly, right? And on now we can go because that ship needs to continue. We're all on it. If something happens to the ship, what happens to us? So the last thing we need is for an individual believer to put a cannon in the cannonball and point it down at the ship. Right? We don't need people going up and cutting the ropes of the sails. So as all hands on deck, people are doing their jobs, serving, believing, all those different things as we should, it's not necessarily going to be smooth sailing. There's going to be storms. But the ship is ready for it. If we let the ship kind of rot, or we're not careful about how we put our sails away and different things like that, there's going to be some damage that's done. There's going to be some weaknesses that, that present themselves. And that's not going to be good for all the individuals on the ship. Okay? So we're in this together. That was the togetherness part. But part of this in this together is that we actually separate from the influences that are out there and even in here in our hearts that can take us away from what we're supposed to be living out. The truth of Christ. Devotion to Him. And a pure service to one another. Right? That's the fellowship that brings us together. So, all this to say, let's, let's keep ourselves pure. Let's reject what the world is offering us as an alternative Let's say no to the selfish desires that we have in our hearts. Again, both individually and collectively. But let's also remember, as we talked about last week, that that really wonderful togetherness that we can have because of what Jesus has done. That's what brings us together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are all battling selfish desires we're going to be tempted that that's not sin we thank you that you give us what we need to battle back against temptation we don't have to succumb to it we don't have to fulfill it but lord we also would have to acknowledge there are times when we allow ourselves that sinful pleasure that outburst of anger. Viewing something we should not view. Indulgences and excesses in certain areas. And sometimes even flirting with different ideas that are out there. Father, I pray that we will (laughs) 
See the beauty and the simplicity of our faith in Christ, of our hope in him, and all of the rich and amazing blessings that we have, both in the world to come and also here, as we really kind of live that out among one another. And Lord, I pray that we will be careful not to isolate ourselves, not to pull ourselves back from the world so hard and so tightly that we don't have any relationships out there with people who don't know you. We are invading the darkness. We are lights in that darkness. But Father, I also pray that you would help us to maintain our integrity as a body of believers, which includes the ability to rightly encourage one another as we come back together as a body of believers, whether that be here or meeting in homes and encouraging one another in the faith so that we can withstand these different tugs, these different dangers. Ultimately, Lord, we thank you for our relationship in Jesus as individuals and as this local assembly. In Christ's name, amen.